0: I know for both of us a a great opportunity to be here uh, and and to continue the dialogue that we we both had with you uh, around these issues. Religious ideas about the world are particularly resistant to change. Next, I suppose, to ideas about God or belief in the existence of weapons of mass destruction Uh, ideas about the world that are connected to our religious beliefs are probably the hardest ideas for us to change. And that is as it should be because it is often faith that gives us the persistence to stick with a goal in spite of initial failures or the courage to maintain a position in spite of opposition from the powers that be. If human beings didn't hold some ideas about political and social reality that they connect to their certainty of their faith, we wouldn't have the witness of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a Martin Luther King Jr. or a Dorothy Day or a Nelson Mandela or a Václav Havel. But the world does change, and faith can make us persistent in holding on to the past and make us courageous in maintaining the status quo as well as making us voices for the oppressed and instruments of justice the prophet in matters where religion touches society is less one who sees the future than one who enables us to shape the future by freeing us from ideas that are grounded in realities that are already past. And in those terms, Reinhold Niebuhr was a prophet. He enabled Christians, especially Protestant Christians in North America, to deal with a century dominated by imperial ideologies when global events were shaped by power in unprecedented ways, he had enabled North American Christians to deal with that. Christian realism was the name he adopted for an insistence that Christians face those facts without illusions and take up strategies of change that are appropriate to the harsh realities. Christian realism was prophetic because at the beginning, at least, that was not how Christians in North America thought about change and power in the world. Christians in America put tremendous faith in the power of right-minded individuals to change their society. Compared to uh, moral ideals, law and power played relatively minor roles in securing justice in Christian thought at the beginning of the 20th century. If poverty, ignorance, and racial hatred weren't disappearing as quickly as people of good will thought they should, then that was largely because the people of goodwill did not yet know how to put their ideals into practice. Walter Rauschenbusch put it this way in 1907. If the 20th century could do for us in the control of social forces what the 19th did for us in the control of natural forces, our grandchildren would live in a society that would be justified in regarding our present social life as semi-barbarous. Now, precisely because that optimism and idealism was based in an idea of God and God's dealings with humanity, it proved remarkably durable. Among middle-class Protestants in North America, neither World War I nor the upsurge of racial violence after the war nor the beginnings of the Great Depression could dislodge that kind of optimism and idealism. But Reinhold Niebuhr did. Moral man and immoral society challenge religious idealism with political realism. Change, if it happens, Niebuhr said, will happen because those who are oppressed figure out how to get and use power. If change isn't happening, we should seek the causes in the interest of the powerful, not in inadequate sociology. And once change does happen, we should not expect the golden age of peace and justice but a repetition of the cycle with a different set of people in the seats of power. No wonder that Langdon Gilkey tells the story that when his father, who was a progressive Baptist pastor at the University of Chicago, first read Moral Man and Immoral Society, he burst out of his study shouting, riney has gone crazy! Because to a man who had lived in the world of Jane Adams and Walter Rauschenbusch, Niebuhr's ideas were crazy. But they were also right, at least in terms of the realities the world would have to live with for the next several decades. And Niebuhr quickly became the one who defined how people of faith and humanity should deal with the world. Whether it's Martin Luther King, Jr. in jail in Birmingham or John Foster Dulles in the State Department, hundreds of people in leadership positions consciously drew guidance from Reinhold Niebuhr And thousands more followed his ideas without knowing exactly where they came from. The result, with an irony that Niebuhr himself would have appreciated, is that it is the task of today's prophets to free us from the hold of Reinhold Niebuhr's ideas about the world. The world has changed again, and changed in ways that would make it practically unrecognizable to Niebuhr and his contemporaries. In Moscow, you have your choice of three American fast food outlets on the 10-minute walk from the Kremlin to the Lenin Library. South Africa has its second black president. Europe has its own parliament, so does Scotland. And the leader of the most dangerous force now arrayed against the combined military might of the Western democracies lives in a cave somewhere on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Reiney would think that we have gone crazy. But Christian realism is more than a series of astute observations that Reinhold Niebuhr made about the events of his time. Niebuhr thought that his analysis rested both on paying careful attention to the facts and on a biblical understanding of human nature and history that transcended the application to his own time. Certain key ideas in that Niebuhrian understanding are easily summarized. The human being is both a finite, limited creature and an image of God. The final judgment on history lies beyond history and falls equally on every particular human project, no matter how good or evil that project may appear within history. And yet precisely because of that eschatological judgment, relative good and evil, Niebuhr says, make a difference within history. We are human beings and not God, Niebuhr says. We are responsible for making choices between greater and lesser evils, even when our Christian faith illuminating the human scene makes it quite apparent that there is no pure good in history and probably no pure evil either. The fate of civilizations may depend on these choices between systems of which some are more and others less just. Theological ideas about creation and judgment and grace are central to Niebuhr's political realism. But his realism is not deduced from those ideas. In his thought, they function, his the- theological ideas function more like virtues than like propositions. They indicate habits of judgment and observation. They support a certain way of attending to people and their interests. They sustain an attitude of hope that doesn't depend on success. But on grace. Coming to terms with Niebuhr's Christian realism thus requires us both to understand how our world is different from the one in which he lived, and to ask whether his theologically formed way of looking at the world might help us to deal with those new realities. There is a prophetic task for academics that involves freeing 21st century Christianity from the grip of Niebuhr's highly successful 20th century formulations of Christian realism. Stanley Hauerwas and I are both engaged in that task, though we go about it in different ways, as I think you'll see. The underlying difference between us, I think, is that I believe Niebuhr's theology still has a role in shaping that prophetic task. That is, Niebuhr's way of thinking, shaped by biblical understandings of history and human nature, may help us avoid the dogmas of previous versions of realism and give us the capacity to respond theologically to present-day events on their own terms. To illustrate that point, let me begin with a realistic view of liberal democracy. Niebuhr has sometimes been portrayed as an apologist for American power, especially in the years just after World War II, when foreign policy and domestic politics were both defined by the struggle against Soviet communism and when many of the most important voices in American political thought were guided by his vision of political realism. To his contemporaries, however, Niebuhr was a critic and not an apologist. He valued American democracy not for its inherent moral qualities, but for its proven capacity to provide a structured institutional form of the restraints on evil that a Christian Augustinian view of politics requires. His attitude was aptly summarized in his own subtitle to The Children of Light and Children of Darkness. He said Christian realism is a vindication of democracy and a critique of its traditional defense. Niebuhr's balanced realism, however, anticipated neither the systematic defense of liberal democracy and philosophy like John Rawls, nor the intense moral criticism of liberal democracy that has emerged in the decades following his uh, death. His vindication is insufficiently appreciative for a Rawlsian liberal, and yet from the perspective of the cohesive moral community of Alistair MacIntyre or Stanley Hauerwask, Niebuhr's democracy is insufficiently coherent to vindicate anything. Today's Niebuhrian realists have not quite known how to position themselves between these more starkly drawn alternatives than Niebuhr himself faced. On the one hand, it's pretty clear that the political arena as Christian realism pictures it falls far short of the continuity and coherence that McIntyre would require for a genuine moral discussion. A realist who is also a moral skeptic won't be particularly troubled by this because a realist who's a moral skeptic will say, of course, public uh, discourse about the moral is mere gibberish. It isn't supposed to mean anything. It's merely a cover for the self-interested, power-driven decisions that political actors make. Realism is designed to explain what people in politics do and what they say while they're doing it is irrelevant. But not all realists are moral skeptics. Most of them, I think, are not. Many of them make claims like McIntyre's claims, based on a substantive notion of the human good and the perennial requirements of human community. And that's why Niebuhr's elaboration of those moral base points in the Christian tradition had such resonance for so many of the political realists in his own time. So, realists, especially religious realists, feel a certain affinity for the Howard Wass McIntyre critique of liberalism, despite the fact that Howard Wass and McIntyre say unkind things about realism that suggest that realism is just a particularly sloppy way of being a liberal. There has been, then, some tendency among Christian realists to join in the criticism of the thin theory of the good and the liberal concept of public reason and to blame John Rawls for the decay of public life and the rise of egocentric individualism and the loss of social capital and everything else that's wrong in contemporary public life. I have even written a few paragraphs like that myself, but I hereby repent and recant (laughs) Because while there are problems in Rawls's theoretical defense of liberal democracy, and, in, uh, and, he, and he seems to recognize that in some of his uh, later writings, uh, there is much more about the world of liberal political thought uh, that, uh, uh, that engages uh, the, the Christian realists. The pragmatic development of moral and political consensus Uh, as as seen in liberal democracies is a point at which the the, the Christian realist can engage with with the discourse of liberal democracy and that separates uh, Christian realist, I think, from the search for uh, the settled settled tradition of goods and virtues that grows in MacIntyre's account of a moral community. And I think the effects of that kind of pragmatic search for moral and political consensus are likely to become even more important in the future as political changes that have been wrought in Eastern Europe and Southern Africa and parts of Latin America take on permanent constitutional forms. Niebuhr's Christian realism in his time reminded the established political systems of Europe and North America that their sources of moral judgment were located deep within religious and cultural traditions. But a consistent Christian realism also has to be attentive to the growing edge where new institutions and traditions are forming. Liberal political theory is not a perfect tool for understanding those changes, but it focuses the inquiry in the right place, and it should become a more important conversation partner for realistic Christianity uh, than it has been in recent years. A second point at which a contemporary realist has to think about Niebuhr's world in a different way has to do with the role of the modern state in global politics. Niebuhr's Christian realism gained its hold on our thinking by helping us understand a world divided into sovereign states, a few of which were powerful enough to have imperial ambitions. Realism helped us to understand that war and preparation for war between states were the determinants of world events, and that these realities were not very responsive to moral influences or to the wishes of the mass of the people. Being realistic in Niebuhr's time meant understanding the structure of nations and empires and fitting whatever modest hopes we might have for peace into that framework. But, of course, that framework is what has now vanished. The collapse of the Soviet Union left the world with a single superpower and rendered old formulations of deterrence and global balance of power obsolete. Globalization of business and communications has generated new economic entities that are sometimes richer than the states whose borders they cross. Overwhelmed by new economic and political forces, some states simply fail and become refuges for terrorists or terrorists. Unleash genocidal rivalries among their inhabitants and their neighbors. Other states succeed so well that they're no longer able to control the economic and cultural forces that grew up under their protection and now spill across borders that once contained and nurtured them. The world that came into being on September 12, 2001, would have been unrecognizable to Niebuhr and Kennan and Morgenthau and the rest of the mid century political. Realists, But what Reinhold Niebuhr contributed was a more durable insight that can do more than help us analyze a given system of political relations. It also recognizes the historical contingency in the system itself. God's order can never be identified with some specific form of social organization, Niebuhr wrote. It must be recognized that insofar as principles of justice are given specific historical meaning, they also, he says, become touched by historical contingency. And that sense of boundedness and of history was what was central to what Niebuhr called the biblical understanding of political wisdom. To be realistic about global politics is not to insist that nation-states will continue to behave like nation-states forever and ever, world without end. To be realistic is to begin to imagine a much wider range of possibilities for organizing global society than we have yet experienced. That sort of thinking makes Christian realists uncomfortable, of course. We used to call it utopian, which meant that it was unrealistic. But there's a useful distinction to be made between utopian speculation, which tells us how life might be lived if human nature were different, and a realist imagination that tries in a time of rapid change to explore all of the variations on human nature and historical contingency. There are risks in that kind of imagination, but the greater risk, I think, is a status quo realism that attempts to deal with the pace and unpredictability of change by shoring up the nation-state system and returning all political questions to its management simply because that's the only system we know for controlling events uh, and, and a system for, whom, for which we, we reason, are reasonably sure we know the rules. So if we're going to read Reinhold Niebuhr quickly and in the conventional mid-century way of reading him, it might be better not to read him at all, because we already know too well those lessons about self-interest and power We might hear his critique of the vague universalism of liberalism, as he called it, in ways that make us want to retreat from liberal public ethics. Or we might find ourselves so intrigued by the forces of nations and empires that we don't hear the voices of those millions of people whose urgent problems in other parts of the globe would receive even less attention than they now get if Christians didn't pay attention to them. The way to read Niebuhr now, I think, is to remember how realism displaced progressive optimism to arrive at the dominant position that it apparently still holds. Realism paid attention to what was really happening. and In the 1930s, that meant calling attention to some grim and persistent economic and political realities that would eventually lead to a Second World War despite the resurgence of Christian pacifism after the end of the First World War. From the 1950s through the 1980s, realism meant recognizing that deterrence and the balance of power had created a stable international system of relative security, despite longings for more justice and more peace. Paying attention to what was happening for those six decades, meant reminding people of some enduring, if unattractive, features of the human condition and asking them to trim their expectations to fit those constraints. Today, I think, paying attention to what is really happening involves accepting the fact that structures of stability that have lasted not just for five or six decades, but for five or six centuries are coming to an end. And we are about to experience cultural change and institutional transformation on a scale unprecedented since the beginning of the modern era. Not all of this change will be good, and even less of it will be welcome, especially in the prosperous countries of the North Atlantic world. But the Christian realist in the 21st century will be someone who takes all of those possibilities seriously, rather than the 20th century realist, tries to keep hope and fear within the boundaries of existing structures. If we try to be realists in that new way, we will not be saying exactly what Reinhold Niebuhr said, but we will be doing what he did. He paid attention to what was really happening, and he looked at events with a wisdom shaped by biblical understanding of history and human nature. That didn't give him all the answers, but it did enable him to pose questions about the new conditions in terms that made sense to most people. I wonder if there's any chance that we could learn to do that in our time as well as he did it in his.